Seven world powers are looking to counter China with a new project and $100 billion in funding. It's designed as an answer to China's Belt and Road Initiative. We take a closer look at why some call Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative a form of debt trap diplomacy. The U.S. steps up engagement in the Indo-Pacific in an attempt to counter China's growing influence. That's ahead of the next NATO meeting. And a Chinese ambassador told reporters that Beijing is ready to sell aircraft parts to Russia. But Chinese media have largely blocked the story. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma, sitting in for Tiffany Meyer today. The world's seven richest democracies are now planning a new way to counter China. G7 member nations announced a global infrastructure program over the weekend alongside a $100 billion in funding. It aims to counter Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. That's the Chinese initiative known for handing out huge loans to less developed countries in the name of boosting infrastructure. NTT's Jessica Beatty has more. Leaders of the G7 group announced an infrastructure program Sunday at a summit in Germany. It's called the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. Collectively, we aim to mobilize nearly $600 billion from the G7 by 2027. President Biden said the United States would contribute $200 billion over five years. He said the funds would support projects in low- and middle-income countries that help tackle climate issues, as well as improve global health, gender equity, and digital infrastructure. I want to be clear. This isn't aid or charity. It's an investment that will deliver returns for everyone, including the American people and the people of all our nations. Europe pledged over $300 billion for the program. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said the program would build a sustainable alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. To show the world that democracies, when they work together, provide the single best path to deliver results for our people and people all over the world. Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping launched his Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. It established global trade links through building railways, ports, highways and other infrastructure projects. Critics of the BRI call it a form of debt trap diplomacy, saddling developing nations with high debt. If they can't pay China back, then they risk having to hand over strategic infrastructure and resources to Beijing. Biden said the G7's new program is a chance for democracies to share their positive vision for the future. Because when democracies demonstrate what we can do, all that we have to offer, I have no doubt that we'll win the competition every time. The G7 summit's also focusing on steps to stabilize global energy markets. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Now we know what the U.S. plans to contribute. Exactly how much money did the Chinese Communist Party invest in other countries through its Belt and Road Initiative? According to the Chinese Commerce Ministry, in 2021, Chinese enterprises invested about $20 billion in 57 countries through the initiative. That only refers to direct investment made by private companies and does not include investments made by China's financial sector. What's more, U.S.-based research lab Aid Data reports a much bigger number. It estimates Chinese investment made through the Belt and Road totaled as much as $843 billion in recent years. China's Belt and Road Initiative has been labeled a form of debt trap diplomacy, 
Western officials have long argued that the initiative benefits China more than the receiving countries. Why is that? Let's take a look at some examples. Under the Belt and Road, Sri Lanka paid for the construction project of its Hambantota port with $1.1 billion in Chinese loans. But the port failed to generate revenue. So when Sri Lanka couldn't pay back its loan, it was forced to hand over the port and 15,000 acres of land around it to China on a 99-year lease. In 2018, then-Vice President Mike Pence cited fears that the Hambantota port could be used as a military base for China's growing naval power, saying China used debt diplomacy to extend its influence. The terms of the loans are opaque at best, and the benefits flow to Beijing. Another example is Pakistan, which experts fear is following in Sri Lanka's footsteps. Pakistan tops the list of recipient countries of the Belt and Road with assistance from China worth $27.3 billion. Beijing's flagship project in the country is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. The road connects China with the Gwadar port near Pakistan's largest city. The port is currently on a 40-year lease to China. It greatly increases China's accessibility to the Middle East and will likely allow Beijing to increase its naval presence in the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf. Chinese officials say that Belt and Road projects are business ventures, not aid. Most lending is on commercial terms and the details are often kept secret. Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping proposed the Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative in 2013. Since then, the project has influenced more than half of the world's population. That's according to Chinese state media outlet Global Times. The outlet has published a series of stories on how the project is growing globally. One example, its cross-continental train service. The route plays an important role in enhancing trade between China and Europe, including the automotive sector. According to Global Times, the China-Europe freight train service has transported 15 billion yuan worth of imported and exported vehicles since 2017. That's an estimated value of over $2 billion. Driven by the trend, many Chinese tech companies have opened factories in Poland, Hungary, the Netherlands, and other locations in Europe in recent years. From 2016 to 2021, the annual number of China-Europe freight trains increased from a little less than 2,000 to over 15,000. And the annual value of goods transported increased ninefold. The Global Times cited a Chinese trader as saying cargo train shipping from Hamburg port in Germany to Ningbo port in China takes just 18 days and has a similar cost to ocean freight shipping. Pacific Islands occupy a key place for Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. China has quietly rolled out projects in the region in recent years, but now the playing field may have started to shift. Let's take a look. More top U.S. officials are expected to visit Pacific Island countries. That's what White House Indo-Pacific Coordinator Kurt Campbell said Thursday. Washington is stepping up its engagement in the strategically critical region, an attempt to counter Beijing. China is boosting economic, military and security links with Pacific Island nations hungry for foreign investment. Just last month, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi paid a visit to 10 Pacific nations, endorsing an agreement which would have greatly increased the Chinese Communist regime's influence in the region. Campbell explained that sovereignty is a key aspect in the Pacific region 
and that any initiative that compromises or calls into question that sovereignty, I think we would have concerns with. Beijing's long arm was highlighted by its security pact with the Solomon Islands this year, raising concerns of a Chinese naval base being established close to Australia. Campbell added that the U.S. needs more diplomatic facilities across the Pacific region, especially with island nations that receive lesser attention. He acknowledged that Washington had not always sufficiently taken the needs of islanders into account. That's after some Indo-Pacific countries lamented what they've described as lacking economic engagement from the U.S. Many of these nations count China as their top trading partner. The Indo-Pacific region has become the latest tug-of-war between the U.S. and China. Its location holds important military significance. It started back in 2018 when the idea of setting up a Pearl Maritime Road initiative between China and Tonga was brought onto the table. The project proposal was seen as an extension of the Belt and Road Initiative into the Southwest Pacific. And on another front, European fashion brand H&M has closed its flagship Shanghai store. It marks the brand's latest closure in China due to a slump in demand and backlash for refusing to use Xinjiang cotton. The three-story building in downtown Shanghai was boarded up on Friday with its signage H&M gone. H&M expressed concerns about allegations of forced labor in the Xinjiang region that came into light in 2021. Its products remain unavailable on major Chinese e-commerce sites like Tmall, JD.com. UN experts and human rights groups estimate over a million people have been detained in a vast system of camps in China's western Xinjiang region. The detainees are mainly Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities. Many former inmates have said they were subject to ideological indoctrination and abuse in the camps. New details on the China-Russia relationship. Beijing is prepared to supply Moscow with aircraft parts through channels that can avoid U.S. sanctions. That's according to what the Chinese ambassador to Moscow told the Russian news agency. The diplomat Zhang Hanhui said, quote, We are ready to supply components to Russia. Airlines are currently addressing it. They have certain channels. There are no restrictions from the Chinese side. But Zhang didn't give details on what he referred to as certain channels. Zhang's remarks weren't published by any official Chinese media. Chinese news portal NetEase was the only outlet that covered the story, but it was removed soon after being published. Earlier in March, Washington warned Beijing not to use the business opportunities created by Western sanctions against Russia. As part of a raft of sanctions, Western countries banned the export, lease, and supply of aircraft and components to Russia in February. In response, Russia seized the foreign aircraft leased by airlines. Multiple attorneys general petitioned the Supreme Court concerning citizens' right to religious freedom. They asked the court to reconsider a ruling on harassment of Falun Gong practitioners, calling it an issue of national importance. Here's more. 23 attorneys general filed a multi-state amicus brief with the U.S. Supreme Court, upholding the right to religious freedom in the United States. According to a press release by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's office, the AGs are calling on the highest court to revert a lower court decision. In 2015, 13 residents of Flushing, New York, filed a complaint against the Chinese Anti-Cult Alliance worldwide. Petitioners detailed a six-year campaign that saw more than 40 beatings, incidents of harassment, and death threats against them. The reason? 
that they participated in parades on behalf of the Falun Gong meditation practice, handed out related leaflets, or managed a booth with related literature. Freedom of religion in places of religious worship is protected under the Freedom of Clinic Entrance Act. But the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Court in New York dismissed the case, holding that the plaintiffs were not protected by the statute. The AGs argue that the lower court narrowly interpreted the term to mean places devoted primarily to religious worship. And by doing so, it unduly narrowed a statute meant to bar the worst acts of violence in many of America's sacred places. The brief also states Falun Gong practitioners are exactly the sort of worshipers one might expect to find safety in a statute like this. The AGs therefore found the ruling wrong on an issue of national importance that stands at the center of our constitutional tradition. Falun Gong is a spiritual practice that originated in China, but that has been persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party since 1999. In 2021 alone, over 10,000 cases of harassment and 6,000 arrests linked to the practice have been reported in mainland China. Now we'd like to take a moment to address a frequently asked question from our viewers. Why YouTube demonetized our channel? We never got a specific answer from YouTube, even after we repeatedly appealed the demonetization. Here's what we did get. A notice that a channel associated with our account was flagged for serious violations of YouTube monetization policies. We don't know what YouTube policy we allegedly violated. And it's not just our channel. All other channels run by NTD have also been demonetized including the ones that broadcast Chinese-language programming. Coming up, a 25-year anniversary is around the corner of when Britain returned Hong Kong to Beijing rule. To mark the occasion, the last British governor of Hong Kong has a piece of an unusual advice for the city's incoming leader. That's as the Chinese Communist Party appears to be interpreting the history books in its own way. And the U.S.-China standoff, how serious has it become? The Chinese Communist Party shares its take through an extensive article. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma sitting in for Tiffany Meyer today. As we approach the 25-year mark since Hong Kong was handed back to China, the last British governor of Hong Kong described the situation there as heartbreaking. He says the world is dealing with what he called a post-peak China as he launched his new book, The Hong Kong Diaries. NTD's Jane Wuerl was at the book launch and has more for us. In 1997, Hong Kong was handed back to China under what was meant to be one country, two systems, an agreement to preserve Hong Kong's civil liberties for 50 years. Lord Chris Patton led the last British government in Hong Kong and said it's distressing to see what's happening to Hong Kongers today. It's pretty heartbreaking when you see what's happened to those people who, uh, who identify themselves as Hong Kong Chinese, Hong Kongers, but I'm proud of the fact that Hong Kong has reverted to Chinese sovereignty the occupied territory, and I just find it intensely difficult. But he says he does have hope that Hong Kong will become a great city again. 
He spoke as he launched his new book, The Hong Kong Diaries. It's based on a diary he kept while he was the governor of Hong Kong, which details his day-to-day life running Hong Kong as a British colony and the path to the handover. He had some advice for the incoming leader of Hong Kong, John Lee, who was the sole candidate for the latest chief executive election in which the vast majority of Hong Kongers weren't allowed to vote. My one piece of advice to um, um, Mr Lee would be to encourage his wife and children to keep their British passports. MPs have been critical of Beijing's increasing authoritarian control of Hong Kong. Lord Patton says the future of the city's economic prosperity depends on the rule of law. It becomes more difficult if a lot of your best people are leaving and if you're starting to lose um, the relationship between um, between uh, um, freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry um, and uh, the management of the economy. I think that there is a close relationship between the rule of law and economic success. He hopes this book will get more people talking about what Hong Kong represents to the free world. Jane Warrell, NTG News, London. Hong Kong was not a British colony? That's what a new textbook will tell Hong Kong students starting this September. This as the Chinese regime seeks to tighten its control over the city. Activists say the claim is distorting history and is meant to brainwash the younger generation. Let's take a closer look. The new textbooks allege that, quote, Hong Kong has been Chinese territory since ancient times. It goes on the claim that the city was only occupied by Britain, but it remained Chinese territory. Hans Jung is a Hong Kong historian and former manager of the Assessment Development Department of Hong Kong. He believes these statements go against historical facts. The comprehensive contents in the books are distorting history. The rule under a communist regime and altering history are often regarded as twins. Altering the content of textbooks is also part of the need to suppress Hong Kong independence. According to a United Nations resolution, people who are part of a colony have the right to seek independence. Back in 1843, the Charter of the Colony of Hong Kong laid the legal foundation for part of Hong Kong as a British colony. And in a convention signed in 1898 between the United Kingdoms and the Chinese Qing Dynasty, extended the colony to another part of Hong Kong. It was a lease for 99 years, which ended in 1997. The Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, refers to the agreements as unequal treaties. The historian pointed out that the name does not mean the documents are invalid, just because the CCP seems to reject them. An unequal treaty is only a moral concept, not a legal concept. A treaty is a treaty. An Australia-based activist also touched on the issue, saying he believes the CCP's purpose is to deprive Hong Kong's people of the legal system they enjoyed under British rule. In fact, the CCP wanted to deny that Hong Kong had enjoyed a free, democratic system, including the legal system, inherited from Britain. The new textbooks appear to be part of Beijing's efforts to change education after many students participated in the 2019 Hong Kong pro-democracy protests. Beijing has accused the education system in Hong Kong of fostering liberal thoughts that fueled the protests, which rose up against the CCP's influence. The focus of the new textbooks centers on national security, patriotism, and identity. A U.S.-based Hong Kong activist also commented, saying the CCP wants to brainwash students. 
The CCP just want to brainwash the new generation, educate and change them to the point that they won't resist. So now they hope to change the facts in the textbook. Then they will change the new generation in Hong Kong to be unable to say anything good of the UK. The CCP is jealous. They just want the new generation to love the CCP regime. The CCP previously acknowledged that the sovereignty of Hong Kong once belonged to Britain. In the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration, the Communist Party stated that, quote, it had decided to resume the exercise of sovereignty over Hong Kong on July 1st, 1997. And one of this summer's biggest Hollywood blockbusters, Top Gun Maverick, brought in a billion dollars at the global box office. But not a cent of it came from China, the world's largest movie market. Let's take a closer look. Thrown into combat on a level no living pilot's ever seen. Not even him. Tom Cruise has reached a new level. Top Gun Maverick is his first movie ever to gross a billion dollars worldwide. Nearly half of that total has come from theaters outside North America, without the film playing in Russia or China. Before the movie's debut, Chinese tech firm Tencent withdrew its investment from the film. Insiders say it was afraid of being tied to a movie that glorifies the American military a link that could draw anger or retaliation from Beijing. A number of blockbuster films have faced censorship inside China. It largely involves political reasons, where the film's cast or the movie itself conflict with the Communist Party's ideals. U.S.-China tensions have reached a new peak. But how major has the standoff really become? An article from China's foreign ministry might give an answer. The 40,000-word article was published earlier this month, the average Chinese reader would need about an hour to finish it. The article strongly opposes the U.S. Secretary of State's speech on China's issues, accusing Secretary Blinken's remarks of exaggerating China's threats, interfering in China's internal affairs, and smearing China's domestic and foreign policies. The article is titled, The Fallacies and the Truth, The Cognition of the United States of China, and included 21 different points of controversy between the U.S. and China. It labels virtually all remarks from the U.S. as false, while it describes Beijing's point of view as factual. Let's take a look. Secretary Blinken said in his remarks, quote, We don't seek to block China from its role as a major power, nor to stop China. Nor to stop China from growing their economy or advancing the interests of their people. On the other hand, the article says, quote, The U.S. has been suppressing China with all sources it can get hold of and without any restrictions. As for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Secretary Blinken cast his concerns on China and Russia's military cooperation. And there are no limits friendship while the ministry's article responded that Beijing's stance on the Ukraine issue has always been objective and fair. It instead blames the conflict on a so-called Cold War ideology, something it says the U.S. has spread. The term Cold War was also brought up by the U.S. side with Blinken saying, quote, we are not looking for conflict or a new Cold War. To the contrary, we're determined to avoid both. Beyond those examples, other controversies mentioned in the article include regional issues in Asia. Among them, issues in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Xinjiang. China's ministry made it clear that it strongly disagrees with all related statements from the U.S., describing them as slander and lies against China. The Chinese side also denied allegations of its persecution against the Uyghur ethnic group. The U.S. has accused Beijing of committing genocide against the group. The article goes on to complain about U.S. restrictions on China. 
For example, an investigation into whether Chinese visitors to the U.S. have ties to the Chinese Communist Party before they're allowed to enter the country. As well as U.S. accusations that Chinese officials spread misinformation, which the article also denies. The Chinese ministry instead states that all of these statements stem from what it called America's dislike of the Chinese Communist Party. From the U.S. side, Blinken stated that Washington wants countries to coexist and cooperate and specifically noted that China's transformation is due to the talent, the ingenuity, and the hard work of the Chinese people. And that's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Don Ma. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow. Presenting the heritage of traditional Chinese martial arts, promoting martial ethics, and reviving the true tradition. The 2022 NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition Preliminaries will be held in New York and Taiwan. On August 28th, the finals will be broadcast live online worldwide. Registration hotline 188-477-9228. For more information, please visit martialarts.ntdtv.com.